Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Welcome to part two of my top 10 biggest game changers, where I'm going over the things that have made some of the biggest impact on the way I hear sounds, the way I produce music, the way I mix. I hope that the first part was informative to you. We're going to get into some more game changers today. And there's a few more bonus ones at the end, because like I said on the last episode, it was very tough to narrow down this list. But let's go ahead and get started with number six. Okay, game changer number six is to not be afraid of processing. This one took me a long time to get comfortable with. For years, I had it in my mind that like real engineers don't use a lot of EQ and that it was some sort of ego thing to be like, oh yeah, this didn't have any EQ on it. I'm proud of that because it didn't have any EQ and like that's the goal. You hear the big name engineers, Al Schmidt, Elliot Shiner, like Bruce Wedeen, all these heroes that have recorded these amazing records talk about how like EQ, you know, use it as a last resort, you know, try not to use it as a crutch. But when you really sit down and watch an engineer, you watch a pro or you do a mix with the master sort of thing and they crank on those EQs, all that gets thrown out the window. A video that I encourage all of you to watch is a video, it's a, it's a preview from a mix with the masters thing that they did at a big studio with a Neve console. It's CLA recording drums for Phil X. So if you go to YouTube and you type that in like CLA drum recording or something like that, you'll see this video and it's, I don't know, eight, 10 minutes, something like that. And the most important lesson that I think you can get from that is first of all, by the end of that eight minutes while he's sound checking drums, it pretty much sounds like a finished record and he's just recording. But another thing that will strike you is that he's EQing the crap out of stuff. He's adding 8 dB, 10 dB, 15 dB on certain things. And he has an ideal source situation. He's got a professional drummer. He's got a great kit. He's in an amazing studio. He's got a Neve console. He's got great mics. All of those things are great. And he's still EQing and compressing out the butt. So (laughs) that should throw to rest any idea that you have that like pro engineers don't EQ because it's just not true. There's no reason to be afraid of EQ or compression, okay? Now, you might be afraid of them if your monitoring is not great because I don't know if you can trust them. But if your monitoring is good, you, you shouldn't be afraid of them. If you need to add 10 dB of EQ to something, then do it. And if you don't, then don't. That's it. That's, that's all there is to it. If you need to compress a vocal 20 dB to sound like what you want, then do it. There is nothing wrong with compressing a vocal 20 dB. There's also nothing nothing wrong with compressing a vocal 2 dB or doing four compressors all doing 1 dB each. There, there, there really is nothing wrong with any of it, okay? It, it's very easy to be afraid of processing. And, you know, there's just been too many situations where I've heard a sound that I thought was great. I asked a friend of mine, how'd you, how'd you do that? And they show me their chain and it's like they're slamming a compressor or they're doing crazy EQ. And in my brain, it was just like, oh, <laughs> would I have done that? Or would I have been like afraid to do that for some reason? Because I thought that's not how you're supposed to do it. And, and to some degree, I think it's a, it's a pride thing where people think like, well, you know, if I was, if I was a good engineer, I wouldn't have to do that, right? Like I wouldn't have to compress something that much or EQ something that much. The recording would have been good. And doing so feels almost like a failure, right? Like it feels like you didn't get a good recording. Thus you had to resort to all this EQ. And that's just not true. 
that's really just not true. Like I said, that CLA video shows him in the ideal circumstance with every piece, great, top gear, top players, top, you know what I mean? Top shelf stuff. And he's still doing it. Why? Because it's the sound. In some situations, that is the sound. Pushing a console hard, driving those EQs, adding a bunch of top end. You know, like sometimes that's just the sound. And it's okay. It's totally fine. It's just manipulation of frequencies. It's not some failure, some grand failure of you as an engineer, you know. Now, yes, you can get yourself into trouble with that sort of thing, especially with EQ and compression. But it, again, if you can trust your monitoring and you can trust your experience and, and you know, practice it on plugins first, you know, just don't be afraid of what you're seeing. Don't be afraid that the EQ says 9 dB, right? Or, or 6 or, or 10 or whatever it is. Don't be afraid that the compressor gain reduction is pinned. If it sounds good, then use it, you know? And, and also, you know, if it helps you, then use the analog style plugins that don't have an accurate meter or don't have a dB readout, right? Some people, they really can't interface well with like FabFilter and things like that with a modern sort of uh, user interface because it freaks them out too much. It makes them think like, oh no, I'm, I'm doing something wrong or like that EQ is crazy. That's too much, right? Whereas if they're using an analog styled EQ and you just see a knob, it's like you feel less guilt for doing that. And if that's what it takes, go for it. I can recommend lots of great analog-styled plugins that don't have an accurate dB meter, meter readout that shows you exactly what you're doing. And you can do it just by, by listening, by what sounds good. And who cares how many dB it is, right? I uh, used some EQ on a classical recording recently where there was kind of a goofy sound that we had to pitch shift and, and change and make it sound like a different instrument because we didn't have that instrument. And I ended up adding like 20 something dB of EQ to it. And the client was really happy with it. He was like, well, that's crazy, but it sounds good. So cool. And, you know, it was just the nature of the beast. We had to do it to kind of fake this other instrument. And had I been afraid to do that, like, oh, that's too much, we wouldn't have gotten that sound. You know, you, you just, you can't be afraid of doing it. It's not a failure. You know, in some cases, it's the wrong move, absolutely. But in others, it's what you got to do. And as you get better, you can under, you can start to, again, like, translate and synthesize, what did I learn from this? Why did I have to add that much EQ? Is there something I could have done to the source to make it closer to that? Or is that just, it needed that much EQ because it needed it? And no source sounds like that. Sometimes it is something you can get better at at the source. Other times, it's not. Other times, it's like an effect. You're doing that for effect. You know, compression, I think, is a good example. Like, singers don't sound like that. Like, that, that sound of a slammed 1176 doesn't come out of a person's face. <laughs> like, that's not a thing. You know, it's a manufactured sound, but it's a sound that in the right context is awesome. It sounds like rock and roll. It sounds like pop or whatever, right? Like, it's a completely, quote, fake experience. That's not something the source can do. You can't coach a singer into sounding like a compressor. So don't worry about it, right? It's like that's part of the job. It's like searching for that energy, the, those cool things. And sometimes that takes a lot of compression. Sometimes it takes a lot of EQ. And other times it takes none at all. And the real difference is that professionals, the big, the big name engineers that we all respect, they know when that difference is. They know when they need to do nothing and when they need to do something really over the top because they've got 
30, 40 years experience of hearing sounds and understanding the difference between point A and point B. And they hear where the sound is now and they have a vision for where point B is supposed to be and they know what they need to do to get it there. They're not going off of, you know, some habit or whatever. They're, they're, it's just easy for them to hear that difference. So strive for that. Strive for not being afraid of your own tools. You know, if you, if you learn the tools, if you understand the tools and you can trust your monitoring, then go for it. Game changer number seven is not ignoring the importance of the vocal. Now, this lesson has smacked me in the face dozens of times over the last 15 years, and I've had to learn it the hard way, and it applies to so many different areas, but I want to specifically talk about three examples of why this lesson is so important. The first one is early on in my career, I really struggled a lot with getting a vocal to sit in the mix. Now, I wasn't a great mixer. I didn't have tons of experience, but I really struggled to get vocals to sit in the mix. And I didn't understand. I was like, I'm doing the same tricks that everyone else is doing. I'm using 1176s and LA-2As and I'm using Pultex and I, I think it's bright enough. Why isn't it sitting in the mix? And really what I learned, and in fact, I had an episode about this, that it's not the job of the vocal to sit in the mix. It's the job of the mix to give the vocal a place to sit. And if you try to crank on a bunch of EQ or compression or saturation or limiting, and you go too far with the vocal, it won't sound normal anymore. It will start to sound very strange. And you'll try to fit it in the mix by manipulating its tonality, and then it doesn't really sound like your singer anymore. Instead, it's a much better idea to get your vocal sound right early. Prioritize the vocal. Don't ignore it and think about what is the vocal sound. Does it have compression? Does it have distortion? Is it mid-range forward? Does it need to be bright? Get that right in your mix early in the process. And I'm talking like in the first 20 minutes of your mix. Don't start right on your kick drum, okay? A lot of people do that. A lot of people start on their mix right away from the drums, and it's just not a great idea because how do you have a frame of reference for anything tonal or harmonic uh, if you don't have your vocal at least, you know, 70, 80% there? And again, I'm not saying this to say you shouldn't process your vocal. I'm saying that you'll end up doing weird processing if you ignore the vocal. So even if your vocal sound needs to be really compressed or distorted or heavily EQ'd, that's fine. The point is, if you get it early, you will know that that is a frame of reference for everything else. So when I start a mix, still to this day, I solo my vocal. I try to get the vocal sound pretty darn good. Compression, EQ, de-essing, de-noising, whatever I need to do, a little bit of reverb maybe. I'm trying to capture the vibe, the soul of the song. If it's a rock song, I might add some distortion, for example. If it's a pop song, I might be adding a really clean, awesome reverb, or I'm trying to capture what the song is about, right? And once I get that, I try my best to not just mute the vocal for 70% of the mix. I try to leave it in, even if it's just vocal drums and vocal drums bass, and then maybe vocal drums bass main instrument. I'm always trying to make sure I don't forget about the vocal because it's so important. And you, you can get away with more on other things than you can on the vocal. You can get away with cutting mid-range on a guitar and it sounds pretty good. You can get away with cutting low mids on a piano and it still sounds pretty good. 
But you start neutering your vocal sound, you lost it. It's not going to sound good. And honestly, that's what the client is going to complain about. They're going to say their vocal is too thin, their vocal is too thick, their vocal is too bright, whatever. And here's the problem. When you go back and try to fix that, it then dismantles your whole mix, right? So like, let's say you made your vocal way too thin and bright and the client's first reaction is my vocal's really thin, it's really bright, it's really harsh. Well, then you're going to have to go make your vocal larger and darker and less harsh. Then it doesn't stand out of the mix, which means you're going to have to go adjust everything else in the mix, okay? So it adds a ton of work to your mix to ignore your vocal. So I promise you, if you start with the vocal early and you don't have to try to get it 100% of the way there yet, obviously it's going to need some refining as you get farther in the mix, but try to get your vocal right early in the mix and you won't really have the problem of getting the vocal to sit in the mix because you've left space for it. Another example that I had to learn the hard way, about 10 years ago, I was working on a record with a producer who was pretty successful and an artist who was pretty successful, and the budget was pretty good, and I was recording it and mixing it. And I was excited because it was a, it was a pretty good record, and I really wanted to do well on it, and I wanted to impress these people who were more experienced than me, and we got to the time of like our sort of first temp mixes, and uh, the producer was like, you really need to do more work on your vocal. And I was like, what? What's wrong? And he was like, it, it's noisy. There's mouth clicks. There's too many S's. It's not tuned well enough. It's not. And he just went on and on and on about all the things that I didn't do well on the vocal. And, you know, even though it was embarrassing, he was right. I didn't clean up the space between vocal lines. So you could hear noise and breathing. I didn't DS the vocal well enough. I didn't tune the vocal tight enough. I didn't correct for timing differences. I didn't do a lot of things that are pretty standard. And the lead vocal and the backing vocals weren't tight together. They were sloppy. I didn't align those. There were lots of things that in his world are very standard. And, you know, how could I have missed that? But to me, that wasn't a standard thing. And looking back, it probably should have been. Again, I was ignoring the importance of the vocal and it didn't make me look very good. And so I had to get much better at tuning vocals, editing vocals, aligning background vocals to lead vocals, tightening vocals to the grid. I had to get better at denoising vocals and using things like Isotope RX to clean up mouth clicks and noise and hiss from the microphone. And I had to get better at DSing and figuring out what DSers to use for what situations. And it was a hard lesson to learn, but I put in a lot of work on those vocals before I was really super good at it. And I got a lot better doing it. So yeah, even though it was a hard lesson to learn in the moment and it made me look lazy or like I didn't know what I was doing or whatever, that push from that producer really helped me level up my game and I'll never forget it because now those things are very standard for me. And back then it was a case of me ignoring the importance of getting the vocal right, ignoring the importance of the vocal sounding great, of the vocal being compelling and cleaned up. And when all those things are cleaned up, you're freed up to do more in the mix. For example, if you make sure your S's are in check, if you make sure there's no hiss in between lines or phrases, if you make sure that there's not crazy harshness or mouth clicks on the vocal, you can get away with more compression and EQ. Not only that, you'll find yourself turning it up more. Same with tuning. When the vocal sounds well-tuned, but not 
unnatural, you'll feel like you can turn up the vocal more because your brain's not saying like, oh, that sounds bad and wanting to turn it down. So when the vocal sounds really, really good, you'll want to turn it up. You'll want to compress it more. You'll want to hear those details more. You'll want to put it front and center in your mix and you'll want to prioritize it. So this was a really tough lesson to learn working with people who were much more experienced than me. And I'm really glad that he was tough on me about it. I'm really glad that he pushed me to get a much better result because, you know, here I am all these years later, still doing it and still doing those same techniques on almost everything. Another common problem that many producers and engineers have and a problem that I've struggled with over the course of my career is making productions that are too large and too dense with way too many tracks and way too much stuff going on. And one of the things that has really helped me over the years to not do that is to, guess what, not ignore the lead vocal. I know when you're tracking, a lot of times you just have a scratch vocal or something like that. But personally, these days, I really try to get my scratch vocal to sound really nice. I don't just track it on a, you know, 57 or something. I try to actually set up a nice mic to track a scratch vocal. And I try to give it a quick mix and then not ignore it for the rest of the session. Not ignore it until we do the real vocal. Because just like it can be a challenge to get the vocal to sit in the mix if you've ignored it the whole time, if you ignore the vocal while tracking, you could very well be setting yourself up for a lot of problems in the mix. And not just EQ problems where like maybe you got a guitar sound that has a little bit too much mid-range and so you're going to have to scoop some of that to leave some room for the vocal. Not even that. It could go as far back as the part you're playing has too many notes near the vocal register and you needed to play a totally different part. Or even the drum part that you're playing, the drum fill, conflicts with the rhythm of the vocal. It's so important to not turn off your vocal while you're tracking, okay? I really, really try not to do it. And it helps in so many areas, tonal areas, rhythmic areas. It helps everyone in the room remember what the song is about, you know? If the song is supposed to be moody and sad and you mute the vocal... You might be forgetting the intention and the vibe of the song when you're getting drum tones or guitar tones. And I do think it matters. I do think it matters that the guitarist should be thinking about what type of tone is going to best exemplify what this song is about and how it should feel and what we're trying to make the listener feel. And if you ignore the vocal, then you might get off track big time. Same with drums, same with bass, same with any of it, okay? The part, the tone, the register, all of those things are informed by the vocal. So it's really important to me to get a decent scratch vocal, give it a quick mix, give it a quick tune. Again, fix some of those things so that you don't feel like turning it down and so that you don't ignore it. And then when you keep it up, you can constantly make sure, is this guitar part working? Is this guitar tone working? Is this piano sound working? Is this bass sound working? And you have some kind of reference to compare it to. Because if you've muted the vocal, what are you competing with? You know, if you're just a guitar, you can pretty much treat it like it's a solo instrumental piece. But here's the problem. It's probably not, right? So you can't ignore the vocal. You can't ignore the vocal or you will end up doing too much. It'll be too busy. It'll probably have too much mid-range or it'll take up too much space like with the, with the notes right around the vocal region. It's just really dangerous. And some of those things you can't undo in the mix. You know, if you played a collection of notes on the piano that are real clustered around the vocal, I mean, unless it was MIDI, you can't take those notes out. You can't revoice the chord. And if you're mixing something from someone else, 
you really can't do anything. You might be able to get away with some wacky EQ that could maybe pull out some of those frequencies, but, you know, every note on a guitar or a piano is not just one frequency. It has harmonics, right? So the implications of having one extra note where it shouldn't be are pretty vast frequency-wise, right? Because if you had a note playing at 400 hertz, you're also going to have harmonics probably at 800, 1200, 1600, all the way up. So it's really important to not ignore the vocal. And like I said, this lesson has smacked me in the face many, many times. And I just strongly recommend that you don't ignore it while tracking, you don't ignore it while editing, and you don't ignore it while mixing. Because basically all of these lessons have been in each of those phases. And in all of these cases, I downplayed the importance of it. And I had to learn it the hard way. So hopefully you don't make the same mistake. Another massive game changer that I still experience all the time and I'm always trying to get better at it is understanding the importance of dynamics. And I'm not just talking about volume and I'm not just talking about compression. I'm talking about macrodynamics and microdynamics. This lesson comes up tons and tons of times, whether we're talking about getting sounds, doing mixes, doing masters, really trying to nail a drum mix, trying to nail a vocal, all of it. And it's a lot harder than people think it is. It starts all the way at the source and it goes all the way through the end of the production. So I'm going to give you a couple examples of why this is so important. I've told this story on the podcast before, but the very first time I had a professional session drummer come in and play on one of my tracks, everything sounded better. And I was amazed. I didn't understand. I was using the same mics I normally used. I was using basically the same kind of techniques. I might have EQ'd things differently, but it sounded incredible. And one of the reasons that it sounded so good is that a really good drummer has a lot of control over the dynamics of their playing. Not just that they can hit a kick drum the same volume every time or a snare drum the same volume every time, but the way they hit, the way they strike the drum makes a transient shape that sounds good. I know that's hard to describe, but it's really true. And it's true for drums, it's true for bass, it's true for guitar. I remember one of the first times I had a great session bass player in, the same thing occurred, where I didn't really have to do a ton of compression because the bassist was really even. The notes sounded the same. It wasn't like, you know, short, long, short, long, or like loud, quiet, loud, quiet. You know, it was very even in tone, in texture, in volume, in length, in sustain. It was just a really fine control of dynamics. And so it starts all the way at the source. And when you go into the mix, going back to one of the game changers from the last episode, talking about how, you know, evening out dynamics with a compressor is not always as simple as it sounds. Sometimes you have to go in and do edits. Sometimes you have to use limiters or clippers to actually control these spiky transients that are out of control. You don't have to do that on a player who is incredibly controlled. Not only that, but a really good player will know when to dig in, when to lighten up, how that changes the tone of the instrument, how that changes how the mics hear it. It's pretty impressive, and it will make everything sound better. This also comes into play a lot with acoustic instruments like acoustic guitar or mandolin or banjo. 
These instruments are very sensitive and sometimes very difficult to control dynamically, and the really good players know how to do it. They have the right touch, they have the right amount of attack, they don't play the instrument so hard that it chokes, but so quiet that it sounds weak. They know that sweet spot. And the same is true, like I said, for drummers. They know how to hit the drum so it speaks, but you're not choking it, it's not too harsh or too hard sounding, or it's not too soft or weak sounding. I think one of the reasons why drum samples started getting really popular, for example, is because you could set the velocity to basically a fixed velocity and make a drummer sound, on average, more perfect. But I can tell you from personal experience, there are human beings who can play that perfectly, not only in time, but dynamically too. It's pretty wild to experience, and it's so, so important when players have a really good handle on their dynamics. It will affect everything else down the line. Another version of this game changer came to me when I first really understood the idea of dynamics in different frequency ranges. For example, how compressed is my low end versus my mid range versus my top end? You could, of course, divide it as far as low mids, high mids, you know, all this stuff. But just the idea that it's not just about the tonality of an instrument or the compression of an instrument or the dynamics overall. It's also about which frequency areas are speaking in what way. I can think of a good example of this. Um, I was working on a record a couple years ago with some mixes where we recorded the drums with a pretty fat, deep snare drum, and it was kind of rattly, you know, had a lot of that kind of sound. And in the mix, it just started to drive me crazy how much buzz and there was on the snare. And I, of course, it was in the overheads, it's in the room mics, it's in all kinds of stuff. And so I had to figure out what to do to make this snare sound tighter and a little bit more like, right, where it had some clarity, but it didn't have length in the high end. So what I ended up doing is on my overheads, on my snare track, on my snare bus, on my room mics, I ended up using high frequency expansion. So I used FabFilter Pro MB, I set up a high shelf, and I set it to expand. And again, if you're not a big user of expansion, just remember that it's like the inverse of a compressor, essentially. So when the sound goes over the threshold, it turns the sound up rather than down. So the sound is maxing out at zero, and by default, the high shelf is turned down. But when the snare drum would hit, it would bring up the high shelf so that I would still keep the brightness of my snare, but then it would quickly duck back down. So in that way, it's sort of almost like a high frequency gate that doesn't go to zero. Um, and that really helped shorten up and tighten up the dynamics of my high frequencies so that my snare sounded like psh, instead of now, of course, you can only take this so far before it starts to sound phony and weird. And yeah, it did compromise certain sections of the song where I had symbols that needed to speak in that region. And it was really a tough lesson and I had to do all kinds of automation and all kinds of stuff to make sure the symbols would come through, but then the snare wasn't getting too buzzy and, you know, whooshy. And it's a hard lesson to learn. And what I should have probably done is either used a different snare or maybe my room should have been dampened a little bit more. Um, maybe I should have been using a snare, a set of snare wires with fewer wires, like a 12 strand instead of a 14 or 16 or 20 strand, right? There are lots of things that I could do 
to help with this to make sure that my high frequencies didn't have too much decay. Now that, again, could be room decay, it could be the actual snare itself, it could be lots of things. But again, that's sort of a microdynamic thing that I'm more dialing in to really think about how much space that thing is taking up only in that frequency region. And it's not necessarily all about the tonality, it's about the length of it. How much space is that thing taking up? Another similar lesson that I had to learn on a record about five or six years ago, I was working with a bass player who was pretty inconsistent and it was really tough to level out the sound of the bass. And the only way that I found that I was able to make the bass work was by compressing it a lot and distorting it a lot. And when I did that, it sounded much more even. However, my first mix note back from this band was the song has no feel anymore. And I remember that because I was like, oh crap, well, what did I do? Why don't they like it? And these people didn't have a real technical vocabulary to explain why did it have no feel, but I, of course, assumed it was something to do with compression. And after opening up the mix, here's what really was the problem. The song was in 6-8, and so the bass was supposed to have an envelope to it that went bong, 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 and, and it had decay, right? It had decay that told the listener this is the feel of the song. This is the overall envelope of the music. It's supposed to decay. It's not supposed to be bah, 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 just one volume, right? It's supposed to go bah, bah, bah. So what I ended up having to do was a lot of editing, a lot of compression, and a lot of automation, note by note. So I used a bunch of compression and things to help even out the tone of the instrument, but then I had to use automation to draw back in the dynamics of those notes. And yeah, that took a long time, and it's frustrating. But again, had that bass player had an even touch, I probably wouldn't have felt the need to compress it as much. Had he had an even tone with controlled attack that didn't get too crazy, yeah, I probably wouldn't have had to compress as much. But it was a really good lesson for me that the overall envelope of the music can be heavily shaped by how much you're compressing, how much you're compressing individual instruments, as well as your master bus. And you can ruin the feel of the music by compressing too much. And again, it didn't sound bad the way that I had it. It didn't sound necessarily super compressed to me, but it, it ruined the feel of the music. It can be very easy to get caught up in what compressors do to a sound uh, to make them sound more even and better and more upfront and in your face and ignore that you're working on music. You really have to keep in mind that you're working on music. So a decision to use a compressor, you know, you have to take it a little bit seriously. You know, you have to think, what am I really trying to accomplish here? Do I need to even it out? And what are the ramifications of evening it out? Do I now need to insert dynamics back into it? Have I ruined all the dynamics or am I making them better? Is the goal to have everything in your face and up front? Or are you, you know, making the song boring by doing that? Are you making it exhausting to listen to by doing that? Now, going the opposite direction, I remember a really hard lesson I had to learn. I was working on an album and I sent it to a mastering engineer and he told me, he's like, I just can't get these mixes as loud as the band wants them. And I was like, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know what, to do. And he told me, the reason I can't get them loud is that your vocal is not compressed enough. And I remember thinking, 
what? That's weird. That's a weird reason. And I didn't understand that what was happening was my vocal was popping out of the mix. It wasn't being controlled well enough, particularly the peak stuff, the loud stuff. And it was forcing his hand in terms of compression and limiting, and it was hitting the limiter louder than my kick and snare stuff. And, you know, it was a country song, and a lot of times country stuff, the vocal needs to be pretty loud. But when you do that, the vocal also needs to be very well controlled. And this is true in country, pop, rock, a lot of things. Now, in rock music, the vocal tends to sit a little bit farther back in the mix than, say, a country song, but it still can apply. And so I had to go back through the entire album, and I had to add some fast compression or some limiting to make sure the vocal didn't pop out a little bit too much, okay? And I didn't want to change the sound of the vocal overall. I really just wanted to handle those peaks. I also used multiband compression set for a mid-range band. So when the vocal mid-range got really loud, it would kind of tame that and kind of limit that a little bit. And, you know, I had to send it back to the band to get them to approve it. They thought it sounded great. I sent it to the mastering engineer and the album finally came out and it was much better for it. So it was annoying to have to do all that, but he was right. He was absolutely right. I was not controlling the vocal peaks enough. And for a long time, I was just scared of compression in general. Uh, I was scared of doing too much compression on anything. And then, you know, I kind of went a little too far where I was, I learned how to compress drums and I learned how to compress guitars and bass, but I still didn't really learn how to control a vocal. And I experienced, like we talked about earlier, that fear of, oh, I shouldn't have to compress a vocal 10 dB or 20 dB. And it's just an unfounded fear. It's just, it's not about a number. And if you go back and look at Beatles recordings and things like that, if you add up all the compression that was going on after they ran it through the Fairchild again and again and again, and they ran it through tape and there's all this saturation going on, they're compressing a lot, okay? And so it's not uncommon for me now to compress a vocal a lot. I'll compress it three or four dB while tracking just to control some of the loud stuff, help it make sure it doesn't clip my converters or pop out a little bit too much in their headphones. I want to make sure that they're comfortable hearing themselves up front and they can always hear themselves. But in the mix, it's not uncommon for me to compress a vocal five, 10, 15 dB sometimes. And especially in really aggressive types of music like metal or rock or even sometimes pop, it's not uncommon for me to use a limiter on the vocal in addition to compression to make sure it doesn't pop out too much and it stays up front but doesn't pop out and cause my master bus to do weird things or cause my mastering engineer to struggle to actually get good transient information to hit the compressor the right way. Another time I had to learn this lesson was I was working on a record that was relatively simple. It had just a couple guitars, bass, drums, vocals, and keys. There wasn't a ton of backing vocals. It was very much like a band in a room type record. And I was really happy with the mixes, but something felt kind of boring or flat, and I didn't understand what it was. I wasn't doing tons of compression. I wasn't doing... You know, it, it felt like a nice and dynamic record, but I didn't understand how come this is just kind of boring to me. And I paid a couple of friends that I know, some audio engineer friends of mine. I was like, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks to just listen to the record. <laughs> just tell me what you think. You can be specific, you can be broad, whatever, but I just need input because the artist isn't really helping me out in terms of input. The producer, the co-producer I was working with already gave me his input. He thought it sounded good. And I was just like, I just feel like something's off. And I sent it to 
two of my friends who are audio engineers and, you know, I got some good input from one of them, but probably the most valuable piece of input was from the other guy who said, I just feel like the music is sitting there. And in between vocal lines and things like that, I wish I heard like a drum fill or a guitar riff or a bass part or a keys riff. And I know it's there, but it's not coming out of the speaker grabbing my attention. So again, I went back through basically the whole album and I made sure that little things were popping in and out and grabbing my attention and staying interesting. And it was going from this sort of steady state thing to, oh, the guitar's playing and then it, a riff pops out and, oh, the drum's playing and there's a little snare fill or a little hi-hat or the bass has this tiny little riff. And it was just enough. And we're not talking a lot. We're talking a few dB or something here and there whenever there's a riff, whenever there's a little fill to keep the interest, to keep the interest of the listener and keep people engaged with it and to keep things coming at you and changing. And it made a huge difference to the end result. And I'm really, really glad I learned that with that record because, in fact, it was a very dynamic record. And that was part of the problem is that it was so dynamic, but the guitars and the keys and the bass, again, because of compression, because of, you know, tone things, mix things, tape saturation, whatever, all of those things that tend to flatten out the dynamics of a mix, both on a macro level and on a micro level, they made it so that those little moments couldn't quite pop through enough. And it didn't take a lot, but just a couple dB of flicking a fader up when there's a little riff, pulling it back down, same thing on bass drums, all these things made a huge difference to the enjoyment of the record. And I really took that lesson to heart. And now I really try to think about that when I'm mixing is, am I capitalizing on these moments where something could pop out and be interesting? Um, if there's no moments like that, then, you know, maybe I don't have to try to force it. But is there something I can keep people's interest on when the vocal is not singing? Now, if it's a really busy vocal, then maybe you don't have a lot of room to do that. But if there's space in the vocal and if there's room for it and if there's instrumental sections, you need to make sure that those things are keeping people's interest. Another really important part of dynamics is understanding that the word dynamic just really means change, right? And that dynamics are so much more than just volume and compression. That's a huge part of it. But dynamics can also be narrow to wide. That's a dynamic shift. It makes the song sound bigger, right? It's like small to big. And that is still a form of dynamics. And so is dry to wet right? It's change. It's more than just volume. It's growing the song front to back. And when you add things in the chorus, like shakers and tambourines and backing vocals and vocal doubles, you're adding height to the mix, right? Almost like a frequency component of height where you're adding uh, this lift in the chorus, right? That's a common term people use, a lift. And that's a dynamic move. So, Really just understanding that dynamics is so much more than volume has helped me in my career time and time again. And like I said, this lesson has come up in so many different areas from little tiny things like, does my snare have too much decay in the high frequencies? Is it short enough? Is it taking up the wrong kind of space to the bass thing, to the vocal thing, to, you know, just thinking about a mix as a, as a constantly changing, moving dynamic system. It's all really, really important. And honestly, these days, it's probably the thing I focus on most in my mixes. So probably the most recent game changer of everything on this list is really understanding the texture of a sound. 
This is something I've been working on a lot in the last couple of years, and it's really difficult to describe because it sort of encompasses a handful of the things we've talked about on this list. It's not just about frequency balance. It's not just about compression or dynamics. It's not just about harmonic density or where the thickness and saturation of that sound lives. I would say the best way I can describe texture is where the instrument is speaking the most. And certain instruments have more texture than others. You can kind of imagine the texture if I give you a couple of examples. So, for example, playing acoustic guitar with the fingernails, right? You have this clicky, sort of bright, articulate texture. Now, why is that the texture? Well, obviously, most of it is the source. The fingernails on the strings produce this clicky, bright sort of sound. And... There's no microphone or preamp or compressor that can create that sort of texture. Another example would be putting a t-shirt over a snare drum. That creates sort of a soft, pillowy kind of texture to your snare, right? Similarly, if you run into a guitar amp and you just dime the gain, I mean, turn it up to 10 and then push your guitar into it, it gets this spongy, thick, kind of oversaturated sort of texture. It gets compressed. It's really kind of dark generally, and it loses some of those microdynamics, but it also changes in tone. So texture is a combination of almost all of the concepts we've learned. You could almost think like, wow, this is the final boss of, <laughs> of all of it, right? To me, texture really encompasses what I'm trying to achieve on a lot of sounds because texture also equals clarity in a lot of situations. When you're listening to a sound and you really think about what is the texture of this sound, you're kind of answering three or four questions at once, right? For example, if you have a kick drum and the texture of it is clicky, it's something kind of musical that a, that a musician would say as a mix note, the kick sounds too clicky. Right. And we as a mixer might be tasked with trying to fix that. Right. And we know from mix experience that that's not always just an EQ thing. Sometimes it's a compression thing. Sometimes it's like transient designer thing. Sometimes it's saturation thing. It could be a lot of those. Right. So understanding texture is sort of like listening to sounds from a big picture perspective, but really thinking about where is this thing speaking the most and where is it jumping out of the speaker for me? On the Recording Lounge Discord channel, we had a conversation recently about how pro sounds seem to have a depth and a 3D kind of quality. And we were kind of just talking about it briefly, but it really got me thinking about this because this is a big part of texture for me, is that pro sounds, when you hear raw sounds from a pro recording, or even when you hear finished recordings, it seems like the things you're listening to have a shape, right? They have a defined low end, they have a defined mid-range, and a defined top end. And that might be a really fat low end, it might be a thin low end, it might be a bright sound or a dark sound, but regardless, it has a shape, it has a texture, it's almost as if it has sort of a border around it. And what I find is a lot of people, myself included, struggle with getting that type of result. And again, it comes down so much to the source, it comes down to how you mic that source. For example, if you mic the center of a guitar speaker, it's going to be bright and sometimes fizzy, right? But another thing that happens at the center of a guitar speaker is you get a lot of definition and texture and clarity. And this is on sort of a microdynamic sense, 
right? So some people's initial reaction is I'm going to mic off center, right? And a lot of times that works great, but you're not just darkening the sound. You're changing the texture of that sound. You're making it a softer attack. You're giving it less sort of edges and definition. So instead, a better way to handle this might be to use a darker microphone, like a ribbon mic, and put it in the center. That way you get a darker frequency response, but you still get the texture of the sound, okay? So this really changes the way that you approach miking up things, the way that you approach the interaction of the source and the mic and the processing. Because you're listening for what the source texture is, and then you're responding with your mic choice and mic placement. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that every single thing in your production needs to be highly textured and highly articulate and highly, you know, sharp-edged per se. What I am saying is that thinking about the texture of sound XYZ in your production is really important. Is your snare clicky or is it snappy or is it softer? What is the attack character of your snare drum? What is the attack character of your kick drum? Do they match? Do they seem like they're in the same world? What about the toms? You know, all of those things kind of matter. A good example of texture on drums would be the difference between, say, hitting a cymbal with the side of the stick versus the tip. That's a very, very different texture from the same exact instrument, but performed a slightly different way, attacked a certain way. You get a ping with a sharp transient versus kind of a kind of a whoosh sound, right? And just thinking about those things has really changed how I approach getting sounds, thinking about how all the textures need to match up, thinking about how the texture of the drums fits with the texture of the guitars. I find a lot of times in rock music, for example, the textures need to be kind of sharp. That doesn't necessarily mean they need to be bright, but it means they need to be articulate. You're dealing with distortion, you're dealing with high gain, you know, guitars, you're dealing with drums, you're dealing with bass. And if the bass doesn't have the right texture, if it doesn't have enough mid-range or distortion or attack or some combination of all the above, you're not going to hear it in a rock track. Same with the vocal. If the vocal is really smooth and pretty and it doesn't match the texture of the track, it's not going to cut and or it's not going to fit. And all of these things add up, right? And so it's not just thinking about the texture of the sound you're listening for. It's thinking about the texture of the entire mix. It's thinking about sort of what you might call counter texture. Like how is this thing's texture interplaying with this thing's texture? Are they fighting? Do they both have too much texture? Does one need to be softer edged and this needs to be sharper edged? Like I said, it's a very difficult thing to describe, but maybe that's a good way. Like if you've ever opened up a photo editor and you've turned up the sharpen control, you see how everything gets really textured. And of course, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, that looks terrible. It looks fake. And, you know, it looks way too textured. This also reminds me a little bit of makeup in the theater world. If you've ever been to a play at a theater and you've seen these actors on stage, you probably didn't notice how much makeup they're wearing. But if you see them up close after the show, you might be like, wow, you're wearing a ton of makeup. <laughs> and the reason they do that in the theater world is because they're not making the play for people in the front row. They're making it for the people in the back row. It's sort of an industry thing where the whole point of these big sort of dramatized movements and facial expressions and loud speaking, all of those things come from the tradition of trying to make sure that everyone in the theater gets the message clearly. 
It's the same with makeup. It might seem like a lot, but not when you're 50 feet away. In fact, it helps us discern those details as the audience. It helps us understand the facial expressions because we're seeing this sort of heightened version of it with all this makeup. And of course, when we're watching it, we don't even notice it seems normal. But yeah, if you're really zooming in on those details, you realize, wow, that is sort of the equivalent of like texture, right? You're giving this sort of extra texture to the face to make sure that we as the audience perceive the illusion, right? And it's very similar to that in audio where sometimes we have to kind of hype sounds up to make sure that our listeners perceive the illusion that we're trying to give off. I think drums are probably one of the best examples. The way that we mic drums, the way that we mic close mics and overheads, that's not how people listen to drums, right? We don't have a person standing six feet over a drummer or three feet or how far. We don't have people put their ears by a snare drum, but that's the illusion that we're trying to portray to them is that they're listening to drums in front of them. They're watching drums or they're standing behind the drummer. We typically don't mic from behind the drums, sometimes I guess, but we're creating this illusion. We're creating this whole world and we need certain elements to make that illusion make sense. And I, I really believe that texture is one of the reasons why we close mic drums, because we need that extra sort of heightened texture from our snare top mic and our tom close mics to really make it make sense. Now, of course, we don't always need that. It depends on the sound. It depends on the record. If the drum kit itself is very textured and it's mic'd up really well, you might be able to get away with a single overhead and a kick mic. But again, you have to make sure that that texture is correct for what you're trying to present to the audience. Now, a really tricky thing to do is modify texture once it's already been recorded. I do find that certain plugins can help with that, particularly certain types of compressors, certain types of saturators, and sometimes EQ. But a lot of times the texture of a sound is so baked into the source itself. It's how it's dampened or palm muted or taped up, you know, whatever the source may be. Another example might be playing a tom with a clear head tuned wide open with no dampening or moon gels or any of that stuff is completely different from putting paper towels or t-shirts over the drums. It's a completely different texture. It's not just shortening the tom. It's not just darkening the tom. It's changing the attack character. It's changing the volume. It's changing so much about it and that will affect everything down the line. This again goes back to the source is king and how the source itself is so important and it's so difficult to change the sound of that source later. And I think it's just one of the biggest disservices to engineers and producers, especially who are new to the craft, to not talk about this, to not talk about listening to the texture of a sound, to not talk about you can't really change that later. I think a really easy trap to fall into for a lot of engineers, particularly intermediate to advanced engineers, a lot of the types of people who listen to my channel who aren't total beginners at recording, they've been doing it for a while, but maybe they don't consider themselves like experts or pros or whatever, or maybe they're struggling to try to get to that next level. Um, I think one of those traps that you can get into is you learn how to do things pretty well. You learn how to get a good drum sound. You learn how to get a good drum mix, but then you start falling into these habits of like, this is what a kick drum needs to sound like to work in a mix. And this is what a snare drum needs to sound like to work in a mix, possibly because you had one or two successful mixes where that actually really, really worked, but you didn't 
audit yourself and ask yourself, why did that work? Why did it work in this context? And then ask yourself the even harder question, why wouldn't this work in another context, right? So when, for example, you're doing a full song and maybe you're starting with drums, if you don't get the texture of those drums right early, it will influence the texture of everything else. For example, if the song that you're working on needs to have sort of a softer edged drum texture and you get instead kind of a clicky, brighter texture, you will instinctively want to make bass brighter and clickier to compete, guitars brighter and clickier to compete, vocals brighter and clickier to compete. It's more than just frequency response, and it's even more serious, I think, because we can change frequency response with EQ. We can't really change texture. We can't really change where a sound is speaking. If we picked the wrong guitar for the job, if we picked the wrong bass, if we picked the wrong uh, guitar pick, (laughs) if we attacked the instrument differently because of the context, then we're in big trouble. We might have to do some serious work later on down the line with multiband compression or expansion to try to reshape the attack character or the texture of the sound. So really, this game changer is mostly about how you listen to sounds and how you perceive sounds and what you're focusing on when you're gauging, you know, is this sound good or not? It's one more thing to add to the checklist. A lot of times when we mic up a guitar or drums or whatever it may be, we pull up the mic on our speakers, we listen to it, and the first thought that goes through our head is, how does it sound? Is it too bright, too dark, too fat, too thin? And we're thinking about it kind of only in terms of frequency response. If we're not compressing it, then we're probably not thinking about compression. But in reality, the texture and the dynamics of that sound are such a huge part of it. Guitar players seem to know this because a lot of times when they're tuning an amp and they're trying to figure out the right guitar sound, they're really thinking about, you know, how does it palm mute? How does it play open? Does it have enough sustain? They're thinking about texture, but maybe just not realizing that they are. But I find that engineers a lot of times, at least myself, maybe maybe some of you out there are different. I kind of would just skip over that. I would think about tone. I would think about, is it too bright, too dark, too much mids, not enough mids, whatever. I was pretty much only listening to frequency response. And that's a problem because the texture of the sound arguably is more important. So I challenge all of you out there, when you're listening to sounds, when you pull up a sound uh, on a mic, you've mic'd up something and you're trying to gauge, was this a good call? Did I use the right mic? How does the guitar sound? How does the drum sound? How does the vocal sound, right? Ask yourself more than just, is it too bright, too dark, too fat, too thin, too much mids, not enough mids, right? Ask yourself, what is the texture of this sound? Where is this sound speaking the most dynamically and harmonically? You know, when you're listening to a vocal or a snare or uh, a guitar or whatever it may be, what's the attack character of it? Okay, what's the sustain character? Is the attack sharp? Is it clicky? Is it sweet? Is it smooth? And is that right for the production that you're trying to do? And that will help you get better source tones because you're starting to think about sound a little bit more in a musical or visual or tactile kind of way because you're not thinking so much about the technical. You're thinking a bit more about how is this thing speaking, right? And that will lead you to different decisions for how to fix it. You won't be thinking so much about EQ. You won't be thinking so much about compression. You'll be thinking a little bit more about things you can do to the source to change it, which, as we've talked about, always makes the biggest difference. 
Another really difficult to learn but super important game changer for me is understanding the idea that you can mix a song a hundred different ways that will work. Just because a mix works doesn't mean it's necessarily good or compelling or interesting or even accomplishing what the artist intended. When you get pretty decent at mixing, you can make a mix work a lot of ways. You can make a mix work that's really fat and full. You can make a mix work that's really thin. You can make a mix work that has a lot of mid-range. You know, a, a mix needs to have the right impact regardless of how the actual sounds are individually, the impact is what the listener will perceive the most. They don't really care if a sound has too much distortion or too much 1K or it's dark or whatever. They care how it makes them feel. And really, when mixing, you need to remember what is the song about? What is this song supposed to accomplish? What is the function of this song? What is it supposed to make the listener feel? How is it supposed to make them feel? Where is it supposed to transport them? Right. And all of those things and so many more will help inform you of, okay, I know I can mix this a hundred different ways, but what's the way that I should follow? What's the path I should go down? Because if you take a country song and mix it like it's a pop song, that may be the wrong path. And the first mix note you're going to get is probably it sounds too clean and polished and pretty or it sounds too hi-fi. And you're going to be like, yeah, but it sounds good. Again, sounding good is not necessarily the goal. Sounding right is the goal. And the sooner you can admit that to yourself, the sooner you can recognize that with some skill, most mixers can make a mix work. It's really about what path am I supposed to take to make this song right? I've told this story a few times in the podcast before, but I mixed a song for kind of like an indie pop band a few years ago, and I loved the mix. I thought it sounded awesome. And I sent it to the band, and I sent it to the producer, and the producer was like, man, you, this is not it. Like, you ruined it, and the client is worried about it. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? Um, I thought, did I send the wrong vial or something? And he was like, it sounds like a pop song. Man, it sounds, and I was like, isn't it kind of indie pop? And he was like, well, yeah, but not that kind, not that kind of indie pop. So like it needs to sound much thicker and darker and more indie than pop. And I was like really kind of taken aback. I just had totally misinterpreted the path. And yes, it sounded good. And he told me that. He was like, the mix sounds good. It's just wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong for the track. I remember he said, you mixed it like a Katy Perry song. And, you know, of course... Katy Perry is a high-budget artist with great-sounding mixers that work on her stuff, and it was absolutely wrong for the track. So I asked for some reference tracks, I compared, I realized, oh, wow, I really did go down the wrong path. I made everything too bright, I made everything too clean, I used the wrong reverbs, I used the wrong types of distortion, I used the wrong types of tonal balances, and the entire mix needed to tilt the other way. Right? It needed to tilt backwards where it was more focused on the low end than the high end. And it had a very deep low end on a lot of these reference tracks. We're talking like 40, 50 hertz kick. Um, we're talking sub bass, 20, 30, 40, 50 hertz, really thick low end. And not a really harsh, snappy, like tight pop snare, but more of a thick, crunchy snare. So very, very different, very different than what I did. 
the texture of the guitars was completely wrong. You know, they were these kind of clean, chorusy guitars that I made kind of bright, like 80s clean chorus guitars, but they needed to be like dark, moody, swirling, tape delay type guitars, not bright, clean, pretty. I redid the mix and the client loved it. And while we did have to go through some revisions, it was a really good learning process for me because I realized, wow, that first mix, I was super confident in it. I thought it sounded great. I thought it worked. And that's just it. It did work. It was just wrong. So it's a really important lesson for me to learn. It's important for all of you to learn. I have had to learn it many times and I've made the mistake and it always sucks when you make it. It always sucks when you send a mix to a client, you feel good about it and they're like, this ain't it. Like this is not the vibe that we're going for. You very much miss the boat and you miss the intention of what we're trying to do. So when you're mixing a song and especially when you're recording or producing a song with a band, you really need to have a good idea of the intention. What's it supposed to sound like? What's it supposed to feel like? Do they have any references? You know, those can be helpful. Obviously, you can go too far with that, but they can be very helpful to get an idea of where their head's at in terms of genre, in terms of feel, in terms of mood, in terms of the types of things that they expect it to sound like. Even if it's a totally different song, a totally different vibe, it still at least gives you an idea of where their brain is in terms of art, in terms of tonality, in terms of feel, in terms of vibe of music. Um, it's just so important to understand that. It's so important to get a grasp on what is it that they're actually trying to do and am I following the path to that or am I just trying to make it sound good? You know, I think a lot of engineers that come from the live world are used to just trying to make it sound good and balanced and come through the speakers as a representation of what they're seeing and what's in front of them, right? And that is not what happens in the studio world. You know, in the studio world, we are not bound by what you have to see. We're not bound by what's on stage. We can do anything we want to do in the studio world. You can make something completely different from reality, or you can make it very close to reality. You can make something that is just presenting the artist track by track with no layers, no fluff, no reverb. I mean, you can make something as bone dry as it gets, or you could take your listener to space and put reverbs and make crazy edits and do all kinds of drum samples and synths and stuff that's not even there. And it's valid. It's all about art. It's not about what is good necessarily. It's about what's right for the art. Good is kind of irrelevant when it comes to art, right? Like you can make something that is good and balanced, but not interesting, not compelling, and not what the artist is trying to communicate, right? Balance can be very boring sometimes. So that's the real lesson to keep in mind. Realize that a mix can be done a ton of different ways and none of them are wrong per se. And the job is not about making a mix that is good. The job is about making a mix that is right. And again, so many of these game changers have come back to how you're listening and thinking about things. Not necessarily some really obvious trick or something like that. It's, it's more about your experience. And that's one reason I wanted to make this list is I wanted to help people learn from my experience and some of these things that shifted the way that I think about sound, the way that I think about getting sounds or mixing or editing or any of these things, because that is really the stuff that makes the biggest difference. Okay, so a few honorable mentions that I thought about including in this list, but they weren't necessarily true game changers. You know, they helped, but they didn't really make some massive shift in the way that I do my job. So number one is side chaining. 
I have long sidechained my kick into my bass. That's something that is really useful. But with the advent of things like FabFilter Pro MB and with so many plugins now having the ability to sidechain thing A into thing B, it's become really a nice, fun, creative tool for mixing. Being able to sidechain, for example, a snare drum into an acoustic guitar only in the high frequencies to make sure that your snare attack comes through and it doesn't compete with your acoustic attack, especially if your acoustic guitar player is really smacking on the two and four, making sure that those things interplay well. Sidechaining isn't something I do on everything necessarily. I know some people probably take it way too far and, and try to sidechain everything to everything and everything's interacting, but it is a very handy tool and it's a clever tool. It makes you feel like, wow, that's a really smart way to handle these two things interplaying together in the mix. And a lot of times it is. You know, there are some really clever things like Track Spacer. I'm sure some of you use that plugin. I use it sometimes, you know, when you're really trying to fit a bunch of stuff into a mix, you've got a lot of tracks and you just can't get this vocal sound to work with this synth sound. And the client is really adamant about that synth being the sound, right? This is a really common thing when I'm not the one who produced it or recorded it and I'm just getting tracks. And sometimes you do run into those issues where they weren't listening to the vocal and they weren't paying attention to, hey, this is kind of walking over the vocal notes. So in those cases, things like track spacer can work really well for side chaining your vocal into a synth, for example, to essentially clear away those frequencies when the vocal is singing, but leave them there when it's not. So yeah, side chaining. It's not necessarily a game changer, but it's a really cool, handy thing and something that's super easy to do in modern DAWs. Another somewhat game changer for me was the plugin Soothe, okay? This is by Oak Sound. It's a plugin I use a lot, and I didn't want to dedicate an entire game changer to this plugin necessarily, but there's a little bit of a story attached to this. So I have always been pretty sensitive to harsh resonances on vocals, electric guitars, acoustic guitars. Those ringing sort of tones just drive me crazy. And for years, I was using EQs, and back in the day when we didn't really have things like FabFilter, kind of the best you could get was Waves Q10, which is a parametric EQ with 10 bands. And you can make things pretty darn narrow. So I would use that to notch out some frequencies. But of course, you run into the problem with these things of, well, yeah, now I've notched out all these annoying frequencies, but now the sound is terrible. So as the time went on, you know, then I started getting into automating those bands on and off. So I was like, okay, well, I'm only going to pull out those frequencies when they get too harsh. Well, how far do you take that? You might spend 20, 30 minutes automating out harsh resonances on vocals, especially if you have a lot of vocal layers or on electric guitars. And then, you know, as time went on, we had things like FabFilter Pro Q3, where you could then do dynamic bands. And that helps a little bit, kind of simplifies it a little. It only turns down those frequencies when they get too loud, but it still didn't quite fix it. But Soothe from Oak Sound was a really important plugin because to me, it saved me a lot of time, okay? And that's something that's really difficult to describe the value of to people, but anyone who's an engineer knows this stuff takes a lot of time <laughs> and you can spend hours and hours obsessing over these little things that honestly, most people won't even care about. But with things like Soothe, especially now that it has like oversampling and all these things, you can really, really control these harsh resonances quickly and automatically. And you can put Soothe across 
three or four different vocals uh, or 10 vocals or however many vocals you have or electric guitars. Now, of course, with any of these plugins, including Soothe, you can go too far and make it sound weird and terrible and neuter it. But if you're careful with the settings, if you're careful not to go too far with it, if you're careful with how you're adjusting the bands and the sort of sensitivity regions, you can really clean up stuff super quickly and it just works, you know, it just works so well. And so that was a really, really important plugin for me. It's something I feel like I waited for for years and I use it a lot because of that. Another bit of a game changer was understanding that Live rooms don't necessarily need to be super long decays. I had it in my mind for years that big studios had big long decay times in their live room, and that was one of the secrets to getting amazing drum sounds. But if you've ever been to these studios, even some pretty big studios, they don't actually have that much decay. Not only that, but they have a longer critical distance. And if you look up that, it's basically how far away can you place a mic where the direct sound is equal to the reverberant sound. And when you're in a larger tracking space, because the walls are farther away, even if your decay time is, quote, longer, it's also quieter and you have a longer critical distance, you can place mics farther away and they don't actually sound that roomy. And so that's a really interesting thing because for whatever reason, we define reverb time as a function of decibels, right? It's how, like RT60 is how long it takes for that sound to decay by 60 dB. Now that gets a little bit interesting because if you're in a large room, like let's say you're in an airplane hangar and the walls are 70 feet away from you, it's like, well, the decay might be really long, but it might be quiet. So if you're gauging by RT60's definition, it's like, uh, well, it might have already been 60 dB quieter in three seconds versus seven seconds is what it actually is, but because it's a function of decibels, then it's a weird thing. I hope that makes sense. So really, one of the reasons why big studios, quote, sound better a lot of times is because of the critical distance and because the early reflections are not interfering with the direct sound because the walls are farther away. It's not so much that they sound better because they have a big decay. It's they sound better because the walls aren't so close. It, it, I could go on and on about this, but let me tell you a story about when I first kind of noticed this in my room. Basically, I was working on a record with a producer out of Nashville, and we were recording drums and everything was going great. Once we got to guitars and vocals, acoustic guitars and vocals, he was like, we need to dry up your room. Like, what can we do to help do that? And I was like, oh, is it really that long? And uh, yeah, it was because... I had basically fine-tuned my room to work great for lively, roomy drums, but when it came time for acoustic and vocal, it really didn't work that well. And, and I guess I had just gotten used to it. It sounded normal to me. It didn't sound roomy, but when I really like put on headphones, I added some compression to the vocal, I realized like, man, you really can hear a lot of room in there. And that's something I encourage all of you to do is when you're trying to gauge like, does my room have too much liveliness or whatever, put on headphones, okay? Isolate yourself from your own control room. This is especially important if you're in a one-room studio where you're kind of used to hearing the whole room all the time, whether you're monitoring or mixing or whatever. Put on headphones and listen to the source in isolation and really kind of think about, am I getting way too much room in this. So 
that experience really led me down a pretty deep rabbit hole of, you know, I need adjustable acoustics in my room. I need baffles. I need gobos. I need blankets. I need things that I can use to change the decay of my room and tighten it way up for certain types of sessions. And another interesting thing is that over the years, in the last, especially the last 10 years, music has gotten drier and drier, right? Like in the 90s and early 2000s, I feel like everything was kind of roomy. Like there was a lot of roomy sounding drums. There was a lot of roomy sounding guitars, Steve Albini type stuff that sounds like band in a room. And I love that sound, but it kind of became less trendy and things have gotten, especially with like pop being so big, hip hop and pop being so big in the last 10 years, things have gotten very dry and very tight and people are recording a lot more in small studios and people are recording with close mics really, really close. You know, think about like Billie Eilish vocals, you know, they're very close to the mic and they're in a very tight room. So it's really important to understand that your live room doesn't necessarily have to be super live. Doesn't have to have a long decay necessarily. It needs to be controlled. It needs to be neutral and not untreated. You still need to treat for frequency response and evenness in decay. I do think it's important to have a live room that has a nice even decay. Even if that decay is short, you don't want tons of low frequency decay and a super dead top end, right? That's not necessarily going to sound great. So just throwing out a number here, let's say that your live room decay on average was about 500 milliseconds. I don't think it would be strange to have your low frequencies below, oh, let's say 100, 200 hertz to be maybe 550 or 600 milliseconds and your high frequencies above, let's say 5K to be more like 400 milliseconds. Like there's a, sl a slight tilt to it, but in general, you want a fairly even decay time in your live room. And again, live room, the term kind of originally comes from like, this is where the live instruments are playing. And traditionally in the history of the music industry, especially early on, you had to record people live because we didn't have multi-tracks, right? Like we only had a two-track tape machine or a mono tape machine with one track. So you needed a big live room to be able to handle an orchestra. You needed a big live room to be able to do that. And a lot of the studios kept being used for much of the music industry. One of the other problems with having a live room that's a little bit too lively is that everything starts to sound the same. And that's not necessarily good. Like everything starts to have that same kind of room character. Whereas if the room is a little bit more controlled, a little bit tighter, not too much influencing your sounds, then you're really getting the direct sound in that room. Now, I'm not saying everything has to be dry. In fact, I really think it's handy to have adjustable acoustics. I'm just saying that the live room goal is not necessarily to be super roomy. And in fact, if you're in a small room, like a converted garage or a bedroom or something like that, chances are you're better off treating your room pretty tightly because the room sound that's in there is maybe not necessarily going to be that great. And your critical distance, if especially left untreated, is going to be very short. So... I could go on and on about this, but I just wanted to bring that up. That was an important thing for me. I don't know if it was necessarily a complete game changer, but definitely made an impact on the way that I do my job. 
All right. Well, I hope this episode and the previous episode were super helpful for you. I hope they save you time and frustration. I hope they explain some things that you've experienced but maybe didn't know exactly what was going on. I know that so many of these things have helped me in my career, so I hope they do the same for you. As always, make sure to check out recordingloungepodcast.com. Right there on the front page is a link to our Discord chat, which has uh, been real fun. I'm really enjoying it. Also, make sure to check out Patreon to support the podcast, patreon.com slash recordinglounge, and make sure to check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash recordinglounge. I'll talk to you next time. See ya.